welcome to Crime and Time on the Rocks. Yeah, so... I'm anxious for this cocktail. Tell what it is. So we're drinking the painkiller. The painkiller. That name just cracks me up. So I've actually had this recipe before. You have talked about it a lot. Yes, so I got this recipe from a friend who... He and his wife got married in the British Virgin Islands. Oh, fun. Yeah, and this is the official cocktail of the British Virgin Islands. The official cocktail of the British Virgin Islands. So let me tell you about it. Okay. It's got two ounces of Pusser's rum. Uh It really does need to be Pusser's. You can read the back of the bottle to find out how it's different from other rums, but it does taste different. Okay. Um, It's the official rum of the British Royal Navy. (laughs) That just makes me laugh. It makes me think of the crown and that long trip that Prince Philip took on the ship. Where they had the beard growing contest seen the and crown. all that. Oh, sorry. But Watch you didn't it. ruin it's anything good. for me. I will. <laughs> um, four ounces of pineapple juice. Okay. One ounce of creme de coconut and one ounce of orange juice. So that's shaken in a shaker. Uh-huh. And then you pour it in a cocktail glass over ice and then you top with some nutmeg. A little bit of nutmeg. Okay. Yeah. So that's what we're drinking. And I'm going to have you try it first okay. since you know I've already had a few of these. Yes. In my now, I am not a massive tropical flavors, you know, pineapple, coconut fan, but I'm going to give it a good, honest tasting. It's pretty sweet. Um, it's good. It's good. I'm not a sweet. I, I have enough sweetness. I don't need to add sweetness. It's a little sweet. It's a little but sweet. I think that the flavor of the rum really helps out because it does. It, I. I like it. It's a dark rum if you're not familiar with Pusser's. Uh-huh. It's aged, but somehow something in the way they make it, it's got a little different flavor. Like it's not sweet. Uh-huh. The rum is not sweet. No. Um, yeah. Well, I heard you talking about when you were reading the back of the bottle. Yeah. I like it. So did you find a good story? <sighs> yes and no. I found a sad story. Um, so when you first, when we first talked about it, we we're talking about the British Virgin Islands, and I kind of got hung up on that, and I was thinking of doing like a pirate story, and then I double-checked with you, and you said, well, the title of the drink is The Painkiller. So I thought, well, I'll save the pirate story, and I will do a story on something else, and I want to go first because then your story I just saw the title up. of your story and I'm pretty excited it's exciting but it's sad at the same time and the reason I did this okay so I'm starting with I'm going to read you a quote and then I'll get a little further on so this the habit has this nation in its grip our prisons and our hospitals are full of victims of it it has robbed 10,000 businessmen of their moral sense and made them beasts who prey upon their fellows it has become one of the most fertile causes of unhappiness and sin in the united states so what am i talking about well i already saw the title (laughs) but i think given the climate today you might wonder if it was about today's opioid crisis. Okay, it is about an opioid crisis, but this particular quote was from Dr. Hamilton Wright, who was the opium commissioner of the United States, who was appointed not by Donald Trump or Barack Obama, but by Teddy Roosevelt in 1908. This was a quote from him that he wrote for an article in the New York Times in 1911. So the opium crisis opioid crisis is nothing new and the reason when you said painkiller 
and I'm probably gonna maybe tick off a bunch of people here, I don't know. But when you said the title was painkiller, the reason I wanted to do the opium epidemic is because I shattered the um, end of my radius a couple of years ago and I was given the generic for, it was oxycodone is the generic name for it, as a pain reliever and I just don't get it. I don't get it. If I took too much, it made me itch and fall asleep. And what is the point of itching and falling asleep? That's well, not so fun. I have a very, very limited experience with any type of painkillers. Like I will barely take an Advil. Mm -hmm. However, when I was in the ER with my appendicitis and they gave me the IV with whatever painkiller it was. That was morphine. Morphine's a different okay, story. Because <laughs> the second that hit my bloodstream, I was like, yeah, I can still feel the pain, but I don't care. Yes. Morphine is amazing. When they gave me morphine when I broke my wrist, I was just laughing and thought it was funny. I one time was in for a severe, severe flu and asthma attack combined, and I was complaining there was an elephant sitting on my chest. They gave me the morphine, and I didn't care that the elephant was sitting there. It was okay. fine. Okay, so that's my only experience, and apparently <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. Well, yes, it is, but I just, the whole thing about the oxycodone epidemic i just i don't understand it it's not it's not morphine you're not getting that same sense of pain relief at least me my body didn't get that same sense of pain relief my body itched and fell asleep that doesn't sound no no because i'm sitting here there's you know my family's doing christmas my wrist hurts because i did too much i took a pill and i literally fell asleep in my chair in the middle of christmas with my christmas colored cast on i just realized this is one of our first cocktails that's been served over ice it is. And maybe our first. I can't remember. I think it might be. And so if you hear ice clinking in my glass, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I think they'll get over it. So anyway, opium and its derivatives were used for everything. They were used rec recreationally. They were used medicinally. Soldiers from almost every war in our history have come home with some sort of opioid addiction. It comes... From It's been around forever, too. It comes from the milky sap from the opium poppy. They've actually found references to the holgul, which is translated to the joy plant, from ancient Sumeria, which was a country in southern Mesopotamia, from 3400 BC. Um, yeah, that's This forever. is not a new drug. Forever. Um, forever. So they found evidence in ancient Greece, Persia, and apparently during King Tut's reign from 1330 to 1324 BC, they were just having a good old party with opium, which doesn't surprise me given his, you know, many, many medical issues, like his club foot and his hair lip and all that good jazz. They, the History Channel actually alluded also to Ragnar Lothbrok using opium in their show, The Vikings. Um, it was introduced to China and East Asia during the Silk Road trading from the Mediterranean countries in the 6th and 7th century. So it's been around for a while. As it continued, doctors and chemists started playing with it. In fact, they credit the famed chemist Periclesius, Periclesius, not sure, with creating laudanum, which is the tincture of opium and alcohol. And you always hear about ladies from the Old West. Everybody's... Doing laudanum. Everyone's doing laudanum. I need my laudanum. 
So <laughs> this one cracked me up. It is also, as you see from the commercials about all of the anti-constipation drugs that they've now come up with to deal with the opioid addiction, um, it's an anti-diarrheal. And in many ancient times up until somewhat recent times, there have been a lot of diseases that come with gastrointestinal problems like, you know, dysentery and cholera. So it was prescribed for that. Yes, to not only deal with the pain, but also, you know, bind you up. Because otherwise you might die. I would appreciate that. Yes, so that you didn't, like, you know... Die. Die. <laughs> like so many did. So they actually found evidence that Dr. Samuel Fuller brought over laudanum in his medical bag with him on the Mayflower. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ben Franklin used opium as a pain, or laudanum, I don't know which, as a pain reliever from a bladder stone. Ouch. I cannot imagine a bladder stone. That would just hurt. And it said bladder stone, not kidney stone, so I'm not sure what the difference is. But both armies in the Revolutionary War used it for pain. Um, they gave it to Alexander Hamilton after he was shot by Aaron Burr. And this one I thought was interesting. Thomas Jefferson used it as an anti-diarrheal during his later years. Now, this one kind of interested me. There was some speculation that Thomas Jefferson actually either became addicted or just really liked it because he grew opium poppies on his plantation. I personally think that's probably due more to his, like, obscene, obsessive interest in agriculture and horticulture than any addiction to opium, but I don't know. I, you know, I could mean, be wrong. yeah, who knows? He, he had, you know, ridiculous amounts of journals to keep track of all his plants. Morphine was isolated from opium in 1803 by a German scientist by the name of Frederick Sturmer, Sturmeyer. It's got the U with the two little dots above it. I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, I should know because I taught German three and four for you... one semester. <laughs> yes, because that makes you an expert. AKA, I babysat kids in a classroom because they knew I didn't know German three and four, but they let me do it anyway. Right. I can't imagine what that would, you know, what you had to do with that. So, um, anyway, it is, he isolated morphine and that is 10 times stronger than opium in its purest form. In 1821, it was already had this like, by that time it kind of had this like romantic persona and poet Thomas de Quinley published a poem called Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By this point, the British were importing 10,000 pounds a year. So there were probably a lot of British opium eaters. I would think so. Yeah. Um, and then things get popping when in 1856, the hypodermic needle is invented. Literally get popping. Right. So now we have morphine and the hypodermic needle. So, you know, along the same time, during the 1700s, England was doing this thing where they were like conquering places, you know, the British Empire. Mm -hmm. Hence drinking British rum. Hence drinking British rum from the British Virgin Isles. And so they started trading with China and other places, and they started to bring in opium through the East India Company to trade with China for luxuries like silk, porcelain, um, tea, you know, East India Tea Company and all. And of course, the Chinese didn't like this because the addiction rate just skyrocketed. So the emperor, the man that was emperor, or the person that was emperor in the XING, I don't want to say it wrong and offend anybody, dynasty, um, he tried to outlaw the import of opium, which led to 
the first opium war. Because, you know, why wouldn't you fight over that? That took place from... That leads me to believe there's been more than one. There has been more than one because that was the first opium war. There was in 1839 to 1842. The first opium war ended with China's defeat and the Treaty of Nanking. And in this treaty, Britain got Hong Kong. Oh. Yeah. So that's how that happened. That's how that happened. And Britain won this war by gunboat diplomacy. Now, I did not bother to research what gunboat diplomacy is. So, I've heard it, but I don't know what it is. I actually do know what it is. Of course. So, what is gunboat diplomacy? Gunboat dis- diplomacy actually ar- arised out of British imperialism and colonialism. Mm-hmm. So it was a tactic where one day Navy boats would just show up on the shore of mm-hmm. whatever country that they were posturing against Uh and that was like a display of you should do what we say or we will use this force against you so it's It's kind kind of like a jerk move it's kind of like a modern arms race kind of thing but it was used back in the day to just posture about how much force they had against another country or vice versa a big bully yeah that's basically a big bully yeah like literally they used gunboats Crazy. To force the hand of the other party. Hmm. Well, it's obviously, you know, works. It did work. <laughs> so, yes, there is a second opium war, and that took place from 1856 to 1860. And this time, France got in on the action, and they tried to... So France and England don't really like each other, or, you know, traditionally haven't, but they got together to try and force China to keep the opium trade legal. So how... I mean, it just seems crazy to me that they are trying to force another country to have a law or not have a law on their own soil. I know, right? Soil. So this, and I don't remember what source I, oh, I've got my sources, what source I found this one, and it sounds a little conspiracy theory-ish to me, but I don't know. But this particular author actually linked the China's defeat in the Opium Wars to the spread of communism and the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. I feel like that's a whole different cocktail. It's a whole <laughs> different cocktail, but it just, you know, like... I would like to hear that, but we'll I need, would like to hear the rationale, yeah. We'll need a new cocktail We'll for need a new one. cocktail. So anyway, trucking right along. The Chinese people came to the United States, which we learned about when we talked about the railroad and the gold rush in the late 40s and 50s. And when they came, they brought opium. And most Chinatowns in, mostly on the West Coast, had an opium den in them, which was a place where people could go and smoke and buy opium. So this is an aside, but now I'm wondering, and maybe somebody knows... So, if you're not from California, you might not know this, but our, like, state flower is the California golden poppy. Right. So, what's the difference between our poppies and the opium poppies? I have wondered that myself. I kind of want to go, like, break one open and see if a milky white substance comes out. Or, like, did our poppies, like, I imagine they were native, because otherwise we wouldn't have chosen them as our state flower. You'd think, but who knows? Something for someone to research someday. You think there's people listening to us? Something for us to research someday. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, in the 1870s, San Francisco, but I have wondered that same thing. Um, 
In the 1870s, San Francisco became the first city in the United States to try and ban opium. And, oh, they got so serious about this. They passed legislation that made it illegal to operate or maintain an opium den. And it carried with it, oh, strike that. It was a misdemeanor. They're serious. They're cracking down on opium. Oh, yeah. That's They're making it a misdemeanor. Hard on crime. Hard on crime. The This also, however, though, was kind of sad. It did lead to the fear of crimes and the um, fear of, you know, are women falling into prostitution because they're addicted to opium and are men doing bad things actually led to people to campaign for the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which was a 10-year ban on Chinese immigration. So that came out of that, which is sad. Um, the Civil War came along in the 1860s, and if you didn't come home addicted to morphine or opium, you got that way when you were complaining about that stray ball in your hip that hurt, and the doctor, syringe happy doctor comes along and starts pumping you through of it. The Civil War was actually a tipping point. The Union alone during the Civil War gave out 10 million opium pills and over 2.8 million ounces of opium powder in tinctures. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But, you know, if that's the only pain reliever you have, that's what you're going to use. Well, that's true. And if you look at a lot of the medicine that happened during the Civil War, like a lot of it was without that. So those people were probably lucky to have it. Probably lucky to have it. I don't really think that I would want to be addicted to it. But it was an absolute miracle drug. It, you know, it cured everything. It took away the pain. Um, The doctors saw, okay, this one cracked me up though. The doctors saw it as it was an easy fix for women. Because, you know, those women, they suffer from things like, quote unquote, diseases of a nervous character (laughs) or menstrual cramps and PMS. So, you know, a lady starts complaining about uterine complaints and you just shoot her through full opium. And then she's quiet. And then she's quiet because she's asleep. Um, <laughs> so you know that they're in the late 1800s 60 percent of the upper middle class women were addicted to opium holy moly right right that's you a white woman that has a little bit of money you're probably sucking on the laudanum bottle like just crazy every middle class white woman yes because you have cramps or whatever just seems crazy. Or hysteria. Or hysteria. Um, in 1874, Alder Wright saw this as a problem. He was an English chemist. And so he decided to make a a painkiller that was going to be less addictive than morphine as a substitute for morphine. And he made heroin. Oh, so that's... <laughs> so I've heard that's not addictive, actually. <laughs> So he succeeded because there's nobody doing heroin <laughs> nobody illicitly. Nobody hooked on heroin. No, no. We didn't have to come up with methadone to All combat right. heroin. Well, so that's so the yeah. end of your story then. That's Go. the end of my story. Yeah. Thanks. Heroin was addicted. It cured everything. Or invented and it cured everything. Dr. Frederick Herman Hubbard wrote that uterine and ovarian complaints cause more ladies to fall into the opium habit than all other diseases combined. 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 Um, this was published in his book, Opium and the Alcohol Habit. Opium Habit and Alcoholism, which published in 1881. So these doctors are just like handing them out like candy, kind of like today. And, you know, here you go. You get some opium and you get some opium and you get some opium. And the medical journals were actually in the 1870s and 80s trying to get them to stop doing it. They would say things like, um, you know, don't leave the needle with the patient. Don't 
give them too much. Make sure that they can't get it from here or there. And um, did you see the article about our hometown pharmacy that gives out like more opioids per capita than like any other pharmacy in California? Is it a chain? Yes. Then yes, I have seen that. That's crazy. I think I got mine there. I think I you did. <laughs> because everybody else in California does. I feel like I went with you there when you <laughs> had your broken wrist. You may have. Because I remember one time I was standing in line talking to a woman who had broke her shoulder. And we were talking about how to fasten bras with no hand. Because it was my right wrist that I broke, of course. You know, so I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. So I would have to fasten my bra and then pull it on like a... I don't even know what you would pull it on like because I, I stepped into it and then pulled it up because I had to go to work. I'd leave for work about 6.20 and, you know, husband is just snoring away until 7.30. And so I had to take care of everything all by myself and trying to put duct tape around a plastic bag on your right arm by yourself is really so interesting. So you can shower. So I can shower, yes. It required a lot of teeth. I spent a lot of, <laughs> use my teeth a lot. So back to our little opium habit here. Um, so the medical journals are saying, don't do this, don't do this. But the doctors, you know, like they're saying nowadays, just do it anyway because, you know, it's easy. Your patients stop complaining and the money is good. By 1888, 15% of all prescriptions were opiates. In the 1890s, it was actually just sold over the counter, just sold over the counter. Like the pharmacist was just like, oh, here you go. Um, by that time, there was a lot of those crazy snake oil things, you know, that. They're like, I'd I like love to Lucy's. buy some laudanum, sir. Yeah, I love Lucy's vitamin to vegetable. There goes dog one and dog two. Sorry. Apparently, an ant walked by or in the front yard or something and disturbed them. So they're selling it over the counter. There was a snake oil that was called Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup. Soothing syrup. Soothing syrup. So guess what soothing syrup helps? Uh, hysteria and menstrual cramps. No, we're going younger now. So oh. this is a this is a morphine and alcohol mixture that was marketed to parents. Close as it was a probably it was a quote unquote perfectly harmless and pleasant way to quiet and give your child a natural quiet sleep by relieving them of the chi- relieving the child from pain that was the most unsmooth quote that i've ever said so sorry about that um by 1895 one in 200 people were addicted to opium or morphine or laudanum or some sort of derivative of that which just seems crazy 1885 was the peak or 1885, pardon me. 1885 was the peak medical advances like germ theory. You know, don't Louis drink. Pasteur. Louis Pasteur. Maybe you don't put the toilet right next to I, the drinking water. I actually wrote one of my senior history theses on Louis Pasteur and the germ theory of disease. That's funny. And my initial research, granted I did dig a lot deeper, was from a children's book so that I could read and understand the story and figure it out. And then I went and did the extra research. Oh, that's funny. So, but pro tip, that actually helped me. Yeah, yeah, because you can, you once you get the concept, then you can go on to the more difficult material. Um, I one time had to answer, I was doing one of those, you know, 
meet people, not meet people on the internet, but it was a group on the internet and we were like, oh, let's get to know each other, ask five questions. And one of my questions, because at the time I was a history teacher, was what five people from history would you want to meet? Or no, what were the five greatest inventions in your opinion in history? And Louis Pasteur and germ theory and pasteurization was one of them because it just changed the world. Yeah, for real. Yeah, so because people aren't getting dysentery as often, you don't need the anti-diarrheal. So this is helping. Um, aspirin was invented in 1899, although Bayer actually put morphine. Bayer, yes, I heard that. Yeah, in one of their things. And there were some, I'll get to it later, but there's That's some actually, act, they talk about that in the dollop episode where they do the, op the opiates. Yeah, I was going to listen to that one, but I, I had listened to that one before, and that's actually what gave me the idea, but I did the did the research and just looked at articles oh the the um fair fruit food and drug act made it so that people had to say what was in their stuff mm -hmm. and that put an end to a lot of these snake oils and it um made bear change their formula to get the um morphine out so it's things are starting to change um states are starting to pass laws to change things they're trying to get it so that you can't just go to the pharmacy and say hey i'd like some morphine please and then just hand you some morphine because that's kind of awful by the 1890s however they so it's kind of like it's going two steps forward one step back because the 1890s the temperance movement starts going along and those you know people who had crazy ideas about alcohol being bad we're starting to get a foothold and it was much easier to like hide your little laudanum bottle your little morphine syringe and still have your little happy time than to hide your booze yeah in 1909 there was a law that was passed to ban the importation of opium that was for smoking that was prepared for smoking and this put a two-year prison sentence and all this really did because you know people are still going to get their it's it's morphine that the people and that most of the people are going for and so all this really did was drive like the quote-unquote street value up it went from four dollars to fifty dollars for a quote-unquote cup of hop so people are now going to start getting heroin and morphine because it's cheaper yeah, so cough syrup, blah, blah. Um, 1910s to 19, and the 1920s, the typical opium addict was changing from an old white woman to a street thug, which made a much less appealing addict, and that started changing things. Yeah, it's not so cute anymore. Right, so they're changing it from a medical issue to more of a criminal issue and changing the, the face of who does opium. Um, in 1911, there was... The same, the same um, opium person, the, the first, you could say, drug czar that was appointed from Teddy Roosevelt was quoted in the New York Times as saying, of all the nations in the world, the United States consumes more habit-forming drugs per capita. Opium and the most pernicious drug known to humanity is surrounded, surrounded in this country with four, far fewer safeguards than any other nation in Europe fences it with. China now guards it with much greater care than we do. Japan preserves her people from it far more intelligently than we do ours. Who can buy it in almost any form in every tenth one of our drugstores. That was in 1911. And I think you could still say that quote today, probably. Probably. The Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914 was passed and that created a federal registry of people who 
produced, smoked, and imported, um, and dispensed and distributed opium and coca leaves as well, and they were taxed heavily. Oh wow! I feel like we're trying. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know because I don't keep up on the news that well as I should. But it just feels like this is these are the things that we're trying now. Yeah, like and, we've done this. Right. Hi. Look at the history books. We did it. Well, I mean, it worked for a while with heroin. But yeah after prohibition so okay arnold rothstein big prohibition gangster right importing booze and blah blah, blah. he was the biggest smuggler of opium oh wow at the time yeah so he was yeah he was dealing with the booze but it was also opium in yeah, i talked about them taxing it this is not an efficient way to do this um pro after prohibition ended and everybody was like okay this one correct this piece of information kind of made me just giggle so people this is to further stigmatize opium and tr try and make it you gotta edit all that out because i just stammered all <laughs> over that um <laughs> we'll see after prohibition ended and people had gotten used to being in the speakeasies and like oh it's fun to have a cocktail so it was much more common or accepted for a lady to have a cocktail so people started drinking cocktails and that and that's what we're doing today and that's what we're doing today but that kind of stigmatized the opium and kind of we're pushed it under we're not doing heroin we're not doing heroin i don't see the point um increased drug use in the 60s and 70s and soldiers coming home from vietnam addicted led to the controlled substance act of 1970 and the drug enforcement agency of 1973 both were designed to limit opium, but prescription opiates had started to take a rise by that time. Vicodin was um, introduced in the 1970s. And Robert Dupart, Duport, who was the former drug czar, started a the methadone programs in the 70s, says that today illegal traffickers are better because it's easier today, meaning now 2018. It's easier to get things in, um, synthetic opioids like fentanyl can't be smelled by the dogs which i did not realize that fentanyl cannot be smelled by dogs fentanyl is like the most super dangerous thing ever i've heard that but that just seems crazy to me that the dogs can't smell it this this article that i read about him talking said that they actually have mailed it sent it through the freaking mail that just seems absolutely insane to me and so <laughs> in the I don't know when it was started, but it was used a lot in the 60s. The women would go in for childbirth and they would be given twilight sleep. Oh, yes. I remember <laughs> hearing about this. So you come in to have your baby and they give you twilight sleep. And you're still like, I guess, not functional, but sort of awake-ish. And then you, next thing you know, you're just sitting there all beautiful with your big bouffant and your baby. And twilight sleep is actually a combination of morphine and scopolamine and i was just listening to a recap podcast of the crown and they were talking about in season two there's an episode where queen elizabeth has a baby and they give her a injection of twilight sleep for her to have a baby that's just crazy to me but um morphine is still the precursor to all the opioids that are common today codeine fentanyl methadone um hydrocodone hydromorphine others that i can't pronounce and oxycodone dr celine gruder in new york says that by 2010 in the united states five percent 
of the world's population was consuming 99% of the world's hydroconone. Oh, I believe that for sure. That's just sad and there's disgusting. people like me that have never had it, and there's a lot of us. Yeah. Or that have only had it for one instance. For Right, for a pain-relieving function that you need because your wrist is powder. So, um, blah, blah, blah. 44% of Americans die every day from prescription painkiller overdoses. So 44% of the people that die. Right, okay. 44% of the people that die, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm well, like, that would okay. be tragic if 44% of Americans died every day. <laughs> it was super late when I was writing this, and I was tired, and I had a few beers. But yeah, so my story is just sad and sad, and I should have gone with pirates instead of... Pirates are cool. Pirates are way cooler than opium addiction and... But what seems, it's horrible. We've tried these things. Mm-hmm. We had this problem in 1911 and we're still in 2018. We're, it's like full circle. Full circle. Yeah, we're doing it again. Mm-hmm. Okay, so make me happier. Tell me something oh, okay. funnier. Let me tell you, <laughs> to make you happier, let me tell you about the Excedrin murders. The Excedrin murders. I've heard of the Tylenol murders. So what are the Excedrin murders? I was just going to say, I'm sure most people have heard of the Tylenol murders. That was scary. I was a kid. Yes, you were also a kid during the Excedrin murders. It was only a few years later. Yeah. So let me tell you about them. Okay. So primarily my source for this was Forensic Files. Oh, I forgot to tell my sources. Well, okay. Well, do you want to do it at the end or Yes, I'll do it at the end. Okay. So primarily I used Forensic Files Season 2, Episode 9, titled Something's Fishy. (laughs) Why did they title it Something's Fishy? Oh, you'll see. Okay. So, June 11th, 1986. Set the scene. Okay. Sue Snow was... I was in the 8th grade. I was... I just graduated from the 8th grade. I was 11. Sue Snow was getting ready for work. She Uh was a VP for a local bank. Okay. Her daughter Haley was running late for school and jumped in the shower before, before heading off to school they were both in the bathroom together getting ready. Okay. So mom's in the bathroom, blow drying her hair or whatever she's doing, yeah. putting on her makeup. Haley jumps in the shower. She's probably curling it with one of those big curling irons so that in she fact, can In like fact, right make... now I'm for sure she was curling it with one of those big curling irons. And using lots of Aquanet. So Haley's in the shower, Sue collapses. But Haley wasn't able to hear it over the running water. Sue was well known, well known by like pretty much everyone in her suburb Mm -hmm. of Seattle, Washington. She was a bank executive. She had two daughters. She had recently remarried. Um, She was only 40 years old and in perfect health the day she collapsed. And she just collapses in her bathroom. Just collapses in the bathroom. Oh my God, can you imagine that poor daughter getting out of the shower and there's mom on the floor? Right, so Haley gets out of the shower, sees that her mom's unconscious, and calls help. Sue is rushed to the hospital, and she arrives there near death. Um, unfortunately, oh she died shortly after she arrived. So they performed an autopsy on Sue, and Good. the initial results didn't really reveal anything. There was no anatomic cause of death. Um, however, the autopsy assistant noticed the smell of bitter almonds coming from Sue. Oh, I know what that means. So if you don't know, that's a clue that cyanide has, is present. So they took a blood sample and sent it for testing. It's not a test that's typically done in most autopsies. Well, right, because how many people are poisoned by cyanide? Right, but this one came back positive. So cyanide, I didn't know this part of 
part about it, why it's so deadly. But cyanide is so deadly because it kills the enzymes that transport blood or transports oxygen throughout the body. Oh, interesting. So it starves the body of oxygen and you're pretty much killed almost instantly after ingestion. Well, yeah, because all of your tissues need oxygen to function. So Sue's twin sister, Sarah, is the one who discovered how Sue ingested the cyanide. And that's because on the day of Sue's funeral, Sarah was looking for some headache medicine in Sue's <gasps> kitchen. She found Excedrin, but noticed they were capsules and knew that Sue never took capsules. They both took tablets. So she thought that was strange. Why would you never take capsules? Sue and Sarah did not take capsules. They took tablets. Right, but why? They took tablets. Okay, they took tablets. I will just accept that they <laughs> took tablets. Probably from the Tylenol murders. Wow. Yeah, pro- <laughs> it actually probably was from the Tylenol murders. Yeah. But anyway, so Sarah pointed this out to authorities. Lab tests were done, and they found cyanide in nine capsules that were still remaining in Sue's bottle of Excedrin. Oh, my gosh. Just in nine of them. In nine of them, yeah. So that means Sarah came really close to also ingesting these these tainted capsules. Oh, my goodness. So who... The bottle of the Excedrin, it wasn't like the whole bottle was poisoned. There was just specific ones. Right. There was just some capsules were tainted. Anybody in the house could have taken those. Well, Sue's family thought that Paul, her new husband, was the one who had put the cyanide in the capsules. Uh, He had had three previous marriages. He was married to Sue for just six months. He was a long-haul trucker with a gruff demeanor. He was not financially secure. Sue's daughter Haley said that after Sue's death, Paul was making crude jokes and he was behaving strangely. So he was suspect numero uno. Always suspect the husband, spouse. Yes. And Paul had also been dating a former girlfriend at the same time as Sue right before they got married. And Sue found out and that's when Paul proposed marriage and said that he would have no contact with this woman anymore. Yeah, because, you know, that always pans out. Paul also admitted that it was his idea to switch to the capsules, (gasps) but he said that he was in no way involved with the poisoning. Of course not. So the next step, Excedrin was recalled from all the store shelves. It was Excedrin Extra Strength capsules. They took them all off, like, off all the store shelves. Then... The news picked this up. It was a big story because, yeah. again, it was just a few years after the Tylenol murders. And they did so many things to try and stop that and combat that um, after the Tylenol murders. Right. So after seeing the news coverage, a Seattle resident, Stella Nichol, called the authorities and said that her husband was recently deceased and he may have also been poisoned by the Excedrin laced with cyanide. So the bottle that she had was the same lot number. She wanted the coroners to test his blood for cyanide. They did so, and it was positive. (gasps) So Bruce Nickel also had died from the cyanide-laced capsules. So another... I don't understand how they're just poisoning a few of the capsules in the bottles. Well, so because, you know, the capsules, would you were able to pull them open. Right, I understand that, but... There's, there's, you know, a hundred capsules in a bottle and only nine of them have poison in it. Right. Well, 11 because she probably took two. The reenactment showed her taking two. So. Yeah. Sue's husband, Paul, was still being investigated as the prime suspect. 
he offered to take a lie detector test, much to the surprise of everybody he passed and was quickly eliminated as a suspect. Well, maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it wasn't. Unless he put a tack in his shoe, because I've heard you can put a tack in your shoe. Well, we'll see if he did that or not. Oh! So the authorities' biggest fear, though, at this point, is that there it may be a random suspect similar to the Tylenol murders. Yeah. They ended up finding two more bottles of cyanide-laced Excedrin amongst the bottles that had been pulled from the shelves. So they were kind of now thinking that maybe it was another random thing. Uh-huh. Um, the unsolved Chicago Tylenol murders had just happened a few years earlier, and they did not want this to blow up like that had. And yeah. So the tainted capsules were all sent to the FBI lab, and they were examined. Each capsule had 700 milligrams of cyanide. That's, that seems like a lot. It's a lot. It's four times the lethal dose. Oh my gosh. You want to make sure that they're dead. The FBI also found green crystals that they were unable to identify amongst the cyanide. Is cyanide the one that's in rat poison? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So they further tested the green crystals. They found it to be... They did a... Um, uh, I'm going to forget the name of this, even though I should know it, because they used it on Quincy Medical Examiner all the time. <laughs> the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. <laughs> so they tested it with the gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. spectrometer. And the green crystals are found to be algicide used in fish aquariums oh so an fbi chemist like actually like on foot went around to all these different aquarium stores trying to locate an algicide that had the same compounds as the one that the crystals that had been tested Uh put some shoe leather in it he put some yeah he was a gumshoe he um ended up finding one that fit the description. It was algae destroyer tablets. Do they have cyanide in them? They don't have cyanide in them. They, well, then why would they be in the Tylenol? That What's will be point? revealed. I just asked too many questions. So a detective on the case, he recalled that Stella Nichols' house had an aquarium. So they canvassed 57 fish and pet stores in the Seattle area with an array of pictures, including... A picture of Stella Nichols. Uh-huh. One store employee recalled Stella visiting the store and buying Algae Destroyer. Interesting. So this store employee remembered it because he always advised customers to pulverize the tablets to make them more effective because he said they didn't always break up in the water if you just drop them in and the algicide wouldn't be effective. Yeah. So they, at this point, were leaning towards looking into Stella Nichols. Bruce Nickel had a life insurance policy that would award Stella $100,000 extra if death was ruled an accident. At this time, the couple was having financial troubles. They ha- they were delinquent on their mortgage. And this is the lady whose husband had died mysterious, quote-unquote mysteriously? They Well, so her husband had died before, but they ruled it natural causes. Oh, so she needs it to be ruled accident. Dental. She needs it to be accidental. So that's why she... Because I'm sitting here wondering, why would she come forward? Her husband's dead. And why she, nobody's she... ever suspected her. Right. So in the days prior to Bruce's death, Stella wrote letters to a bunch of her creditors 
stating that she had marital problems and, quote-unquote, that they were about solved. Oh, my gosh! So the FBI examined the life insurance documents and the signature of Bruce and noticed that it differed from Bruce's typical signature and that it was more consistent with Stella's handwriting. Oh, my goodness. This lady is weaving quite the little Mm -hmm. web here. They spoke with Stella's daughter, Cindy, and Cindy told the FBI that Stella had talked to her about killing Bruce. I'm just going to have a conversation with my kid about knocking off my husband. Stella's... So, what's... Okay, what's funny about this story, not funny, haha, but I can see at this point, like, yeah, they were having financial problems, blah, blah, blah. Well, Stella's biggest complaint in her marriage, because she was, like, 44 years old, and hurt her husband prior in the prior years were kind of like a big social item like they would go out they went to bars they you know like had a lot of friends well he was having some medical issues and quit drinking and so they didn't go out anymore Uh and she like actually that's a big reason why she was unhappy because she had no social life anymore she was 44 she still thought she was hot and like still wanted to go out and party and couldn't do it because Bruce wouldn't go. So instead of making friends or getting a hobby, she decides to murder people. Pretty much. Okay, I guess that's what you do in the 80s. And after a tip from Cindy, Stella's daughter, the authorities found fingerprints on a library book that was called Deadly Harvest that had belonged to Stella. And there were especially fingerprints found on the pages dealing with cyanide. So she doesn't even go buy the book. No, she she gets it from the library. She's thrifty. They were having financial trouble. <laughs> they were having financial problems. So based on all of this, Stella was charged with murder. Yeah. And Stella, they learned that Stella had ground the cyanide in the same bowl she had used to grind the algaecide tablets for her aquarium hence the little green particles. Hence the green crystals. Yeah. But why did other people? Why are th- are there other people dying? She's got nothing against this other lady. Well, so the theory is that in order for it to look like an accident, truly, she killed Bruce, but nobody nobody realized it was because of laced Excedrin tablets. So then she went and planted some laced tablets in two stores, one of which was an Albertsons, and I don't remember the other grocery store. And then... Sue Snow ended up buying one of these and dying. So now all of a sudden she can point out, hey, look, it was an accident. It happened to my husband just like it happened to Sue Snow. Oh, my goodness. So are you going to tell me how those tablets are all the same lot number and everything? They were the same lot number. Right. How? She probably just picked up, bought two off the shelf. Off the shelf. Or however many, four, because I think four bottles in total were tainted. And they were probably all placed there at the same time. So she didn't, like, do that by design. But anyway, the trial lasted four weeks. She was convicted of two counts of murder, sentenced to 90 years in prison, and her daughter, Cindy, testified against her. Yay, daughter! Yeah, so that's the Excedrin murders. Oh my goodness. So she was trying to make it look like the Tylenol murders, but they put in so many safeguards after that. How did she get by all those? Well, Tylenol put in all those safeguards. So the others hadn't adopted it yet. Excedrin hadn't, so... Were, I mean, it's, it's ubiquitous now. You can't. Yeah, you, you almost can't get into your. You medicine. almost cannot take a tablet of anything anymore yeah, because it's just so difficult to get yeah. into. 
The ones I hate are the little blister packs that have the paper backing. Yeah. Because you have to like cut the paper backing. The, the pill doesn't pop through and you can't flip it off with your fingernail and pull the paper back and push through the foil. No, that would be too easy. You have to like slice it open with your fingernail somehow through the paper. Anyway, death by painkiller. Death by painkiller. Oh my goodness. I'm really glad that we drink and don't take drugs because, you know, we're not experts on anything. We're just drunks. So what if people like this and they want to talk to us? They can contact us. There's How? a number of ways. Okay, what? So you can email us at crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. And we also would be happy to have your cocktail suggestions. Yes, please send us cocktail ideas. Um, you can talk to us on Facebook at Facebook at Crime and Time on the Rocks. We're on Instagram too. We're at Crime and Time. And child number one handles our Instagram it's for adorable. the most part. So. It's adorable. Um, and Twitter, we're at Crime and Time. So tweet at us or, you know, whatever you do. Whatever you do. Thank you for listening.